0: Welcome everyone to episode 95, Lung from Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm all right, I'm thinking twice about the name of today's episode. It sounds like a horror movie, like Frankenstein, <laughs> uh, like bung from stem it cells.
0: came from the stem cells. <laughs> That's
1: right. But other than that, I'm doing really good. School's out for the summer, so right. my wife is miserable and overjoyed. <laughs> At the same time.
0: Yeah, I I know how that works. Yeah, I've got my I've got my son in camp. So.
1: Oh, already? You're a genius.
0: We dove right in. I was like, I need my weekdays. You're going to camp. There you go.
1: Don't tell my (laughs) wife. Camp is expensive in New York. You cannot afford it.
0: I'm pinching pennies to make it work here.
1: Yeah, well, it's like free over there. So
0: that I can have time to do podcasts like this, you know. you
1: guys. Look at what we do for you. For you people.
0: I send my child to camp for (laughs) you listeners. That's right. right. Okay, everyone, let's get down to business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And, of course... Follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone. All right, we have a great show today, and we are going to discuss the latest science, as we always do, and stem cell news, and we are interviewing Dr. Daryl Cotton about his work moving towards generating lung cells lung cells from pluripotent stem cells. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen?
1: I'm ready to round it up. But I just want to talk very quickly to our listeners about... One of Connexon's original newsletters this week fitting nicely in with our guest. with looking at the lung this week. We'd like to introduce pulmonary cell news covering everything lung from COPD to cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is very relevant to today's guest and his study with his group. Also cancer. Pulmonary cell news keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the lung research community. Check out Pulmonary Cell News and the rest of Conexon's 20 science newsletters, all of which are provided by Stem Cell Technologies at www.pulmonarycellnews.com. And now, Kiki, round it up.
0: All righty. I'm ready to round it up. I'm going to hop to it. And my first story is about a frog.
1: Ah, hop.
0: (laughs) Ha ha. A newly discovered frog from Ecuador's Amazon. You can see right through it. You can see through its belly. It's kind of yellowish on its backside, but its belly is completely transparent. You can watch its heart beat if you were to hold one of these frogs upside down in the palm of your hand, that is. This frog is known as Hyalinobatrachium yaku, and these Hyalinobatrachiums. These are this is a group of frogs. The name Hyalinobatrachium comes from the Greek for glass frog. So these are a family genus of frogs that have transparent skin to one degree or another. There's one of these Hyalinobatrachiums that has been was found before as a very vibrant green color with googly eyes. People said it looked like Kermit the Frog. But this one is just a little bit different. It has the most transparency, I think, yet noticed in these kinds of frogs. You can see its heart, its kidneys, its bladder. You can see, I guess, see how full its bladder is. It was reported May 12th in Zoo Keys by an international team of researchers who identified Hylinia batrachium yaku. Yaku comes from the local word for water. As a new species using field observations, recordings of its distinct call, and DNA analyses of museum and university specimens. So it is genetically unique. It has a unique call, and it looks a little bit different than other glass frogs. The fathers of this particular species hang out with the eggs after the mothers lay them and protect them as they dangle on the underside of leaves from any predators. But then when they hatch, the tadpoles drop from the underside of these leaves into the water below, and they're off on their own. These frogs are threatened by pollution and habitat destruction. The authors say in their article in Zoo Keys that oil extraction, which occurs in 70% of Ecuador's Amazon rainforest and expanding mining activities, are of concern to the diminishing habitat for these frogs. But they're a cool frog. You should go check them out online if you want to look at a see-through frog. They're pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, you'll never really know if they disappear or go extinct because maybe you just don't see them, Kiki. you
0: ever think of that?
1: So you can't really prove a negative with those guys. I think they're going to live forever because they're so darn cool.
0: They are. They're very cool. They're just going to be hiding out. Hiding out, looking like looking like the plants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> looking like
0: air. That's right. Moving on from frogs to the brain and the body, researchers have published in Nature a possible mechanism to the cause of Parkinson's disease. Autoimmune responses may contribute the progression of Parkinson's disease. The researchers looked at a particular compound that is known to be associated with Parkinson's disease. It is alpha synuclein protein, and they tested for immune responses to two different stretches of the protein using blood samples from 67 people with Parkinson's and 36 healthy people. These two pieces of alpha synuclein were essentially recognized as foreign by T cells, which are immune cells, in Parkinson's patients. And so the uh, researchers are speculating that the autoimmune response contributes to the progression of the disease rather than the start, as it's triggered by the inability to properly break down alpha-synuclein. And along these lines, another paper was published this last week that shows this alpha-synuclein actually starts in the gut. And so it might actually start out as part of an immune response to invaders within the gut. A study in the Journal of Innate Immunity found that the production of alpha-synuclein by nerves in the gut wall is potentially the cause and not the effect of gut tissue inflammation. The authors note that people with multiple copies of the gene that directs the production of alpha-synuclein inevitably develop Parkinson's disease. And so in essence, production of the protein overwhelms the body's ability to clear it and then it forms these toxic aggregates that cause Parkinson's disease. And they also write that repeated acute or chronic gut infections could be producing a comparable increase in alpha-synuclein. This is the first study showing that a protein, alpha-synuclein, that's very relevant for Parkinson's disease, is able to induce an immune response. So we have two studies. First, this alpha-synuclein is possibly inducing an immune response by presenting antigens to the dendritic cells of the uh, immune system in the gut. And then maybe there's just so much of it being produced in response to these chronic or acute infections that it might build up and lead to these toxic aggregations that we see as the Lewy bodies in the dopaminergic neurons within the brain that then muck everything up and cause the death of the dopamine-producing neurons. So
1: is this... Are we... I'm catching an illusion there of connecting gut health to Parkinson's yes. development. Is that there? Is that what we're talking about?
0: That's what they're talking about. The researchers who are involved in this uh, study from the Journal of Innate Immunity study, they are going to be doing a clinical trial using scopolamine to treat constipation in Parkinson's disease because the scopolamine will block alpha-synuclein production. Wow. Yeah, or block the alpha-synuclein uh, activity in some way. So there's going to be some really interesting research moving forward in this gut-brain axis that, and how it influences the immune system. And like the first paper that I mentioned from Nature, that it potentially then contributes to an autoimmune progression. So we've got the immune maybe starting it and then autoimmune causing it to progress further. I don't know, just really interesting stuff here.
1: Yeah, scary. Another reason to watch what you eat, guys.
0: Watch what you eat. That's right. Other researchers, a new study in Nature Genetics from June 19th have looked at the genetics of babies, fetuses in moms, and how they cont- the genetics of the fetus leads to or contributes to preeclampsia. Preeclampsia usually has there's a dangerous spike in blood pressure. It affects about 5% of pregnancies and kills over 70,000 women a year globally. And scientists know that preeclampsia runs in families, but people have only really looked at the genetics of the mothers. They've never looked at the genetics of the babies. And so this is the first large study to look at babies' genes. The researchers compared DNA variations in 2,600 58 babies, children, and adults born to mothers who had preeclampsia with those in more than 300,000 people. And so this is a really large genome-wide association study where they combed through the DNA looking for genetic variations possibly linked to preeclampsia. They found a spot on chromosome 13 near a gene called FLT1, and they a couple of other tests linked this gene area to the disorder. They found that this FLT1 raises a mother's risk of preeclampsia by about 20%. So even though they're only finding this one gene in the fetus, there are other risk factors that are definitely involved. But there is some interesting stuff going on here. Scientists suspect that unhealthy placentas start to produce too much FLT1 as a protein. And a version of the protein called SFLT1 can get into the mother's bloodstream and then possibly damage blood vessels. And there's a clinical trial that's underway in Europe testing a filtration method to remove excess SFLT1 protein from the blood of women with signs of preeclampsia. It's encouraging so far. So not just the moms are to blame for preeclampsia, it's also the baby's fault (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> wait were we ever blaming the moms i don't think so no. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow uh that's great i love it's one of those things to me it's like oh yeah like of course <laughs> why the baby's like the thing in there it's got to be contributing somehow like it is the placenta does come from the baby right so yeah that's uh one of those things that maybe seems obvious in retrospect but they found it Right here, this year, 2017. Nice work.
0: Yeah. And then a final kind of fun story. Did you know that there are some wasps that can recognize each other's faces?
1: Yikes. I just hope they don't recognize my face, you know what I'm saying?
0: I know. I mean, maybe if they can recognize each other's faces, then they can recognize individuals of other species as well. I don't know about that, but a recent study that was published June 14th in the Journal of Experimental Biology, looked at paper wasps. And there is a species of paper wasp, Polistes fuscatus, which is really good at detecting pattern differences in faces. And they specifically are very good at re- detecting these differences in faces, even better than they are at detecting other patterns. Now, paper wasps are very good at recognizing patterns, displays of varied colors and markings. And so they compared facial recognition versus basic pattern recognition in these Fuscatus wasps and also compared it to another species of paper wasp, the Polistes metricus, which does not naturally recognize faces but can be trained to recognize them. They looked at the genes that became active in the brain after the wasps had been looking at faces or basic patterns. And they found 237 genes that only were activated in the Fuscatus species and not in the Metricus species. So basically, Fuscatus has a bunch of genes that are specifically related to facial recognition as opposed to general learning or general pattern recognition. They have specific genes that other wasps do not have that help them recognize faces. Now, the researchers are, are hoping now to kind of mess with the genetics of this paper wasp to see if they can mess up their ability to recognize faces or even make them super recognizers <laughs> to make them really good at recognizing and remembering other wasp individuals. And there's a big question here also as to comparing, if we compared those genes to humans, how broad are these genes in recognition of facial patterns? Is it, is it something that's across species? I mean, this is convergent evolution. We've got an insect that can recognize faces, humans that can recognize faces, other animals, primates that can do so. Are we using the same genes or did different genes, do different genes underlie the same behavior?
1: Did it arise independently in each case? It's an interesting callback because I remember, I think it was just last episode, you ended your roundup with this story about how babies can recognize faces from within the womb. That's right. So you're all about the facial recognition, Kiki. That's like your thing.
0: (laughs) It's important, you know. It is important. Well, when you got a
1: face like yours, babe.
0: (laughs) Oh, geez. You don't know
1: what to do with that. I don't know know what to do
0: with that. I know. I'm like, I am okay. I have no comeback.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's a compliment I meant. You're very good looking. If you were trying to take it a different way, don't.
0: I have a face for podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. That does it for me. Yeah. What you got?
1: I want to start with something. I think it deserves serious attention. I think it's a really big deal. Not getting a ton of coverage. But there's clinical trials that are about to begin in China with human embryonic stem cells, the first of their kind. In the next few months, surgeons in this Chinese city called Zhangzhou will carefully drill through the skulls of people with Parkinson's disease and inject four million immature neurons that are derived from human embryonic stem cells. They're directing them directly into the brains. Then they're going to you know, close the skull and send them home and wait and see what happens. Now the reason why this is I mean it sounds like I'm mentioning it because that sounds maybe a little crazy, it's not totally crazy, but we'll get to that. The really important thing here is that this is like the the first clinical trial in China of the new era, so to speak, with human embryonic stem cells because before this there've been a lot of unregulated trials. I mean just Anecdotally, I can tell you a lot of people. You're talking about meetings. Oh, we can can we get this in the FDA? Is this going to be feasible, translatable? And then everyone jokes. Ah, we'll go to China and we'll start it with the, you know around the patients there. It's always been thought that this is really unregulated science over there. So this is the first attempt that the Chinese authorities are are instituting these ESL trials under new regulations that were adopted in 2015 that are an attempt to ensure ethical and safe use of uh, stem cells in the clinic. So why do one trial when you can do two for twice the price? They're also going to couple this with another trial, a second trial with a different team in the same city that's using ESLs to target vision loss caused by age-related macular degeneration. So they're doing these two major trials. And according to stem cell scientist Pei Zhutao, it will be a major new direction for China. He's at the Beijing Institute of Transfusion Medicine. He's on the central government committee that approved the trials. But, you know, other researchers who work on Parkinson's maybe aren't so sure and are, I think, fearful that this step forward, which is bold, may be a little bit reckless. So just a little bit of details about the study. They're both going to take place at the Zhenzu University in Henan province. Uh, in the first trial, they're going to take ES-derived neural precursor cells and inject them right into the brains of people with Parkinson's. This is not totally unprecedented. There was one trial using ES cells to treat Parkinson's disease last year that was in Australia. There they received stem cells from parthenogenic embryos. They're unfertilized eggs triggered to start embryonic development. You can get embryonic or pluripotent stem cells from them. But this is the only other type of its kind. In this Zhengzhou trial, they're going to also do, in parallel, take retinal cells from ES cells and transplant them into the eyes of people with macular degeneration. So, I mean... Let's talk. Why are they moving so boldly forward? They do have preliminary data, although it's unpublished. They say there's a study of 15 monkeys where they didn't observe any improvements in movement at first, Hmm. says Qi Zhao, who's the leader of these trials. He's a stem cell therapist at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He's a big name in stem cell biology. He's leading both these trials concurrently. And he says that they didn't see any initial results, but at the end of the first year, the monkeys that got cells found that they had turned into dopamine-releasing cells, and they saw a 50% improvement of movement in the remaining monkeys over the next several years. They have all the data, they're prepping it for publication, but they wanted to wait to a five-year endpoint before they were publishing it. So the data is not out there, but they're saying that this move forward in humans is justified because of this unpublished data, but that worries some people. For example, Lawrence Studer, a major name in the field, who's at Memorial Sloan Kettering, cancer center at New York City, right across the street from me. He spent years, you know, he's one of the pioneers in this field. He spent years characterizing these neurons and he's, you know, moving them into clinical trials. And he says that, quote, support is not very strong, unquote, for the use of precursor cells in this type of therapy. Quote, I am somewhat surprised and concerned. As I have not seen any peer reviewed preclinical data on this approach. And I think that concern is echoed by a lot of researchers who think that maybe this is a bold move forward that's not justified and hasn't been kind of like, we haven't had peer reviewers weigh in yeah. on the justification for this move forward. So I think it's making a lot of people kind of scared. This is, you know, tender times for stem cell research. We don't want to push forward too fast and get some, you know, unfortunate outcomes in patients who could have been treated. Yeah. So I don't know, Kiki, stem cells and brains in China. And hey, you know, why not throw in some AMD with it? I think it's a bit (laughs) rushing. What do you think?
0: You want to make sure you've done all of the tests to make sure it's safe. You want to make sure that the data is published, that it's peer reviewed, that other people have weighed in on it before jumping to human trials. I mean, historically, we've tried this before, right? There have been stem cell transplants in Parkinson's patients that went horribly awry, And we don't want that to happen again.
1: Absolutely not. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a little bit of political push behind here. I know China is really trying to get out front and be a world leader. And and they are, I think, taking the lead in climate change and other things. But I think now would be the time for caution and temperance. But, hey, I'll be curious to see how the trials go. That said, I can't wait to see how it works out. I hope it doesn't work out, unfortunately, for its patients.
0: It is good, though, that China now has regulations in place. They are doing it, this is a step in the right direction in terms of how they're going about it. This, things are going to be tested more now as opposed to, hey, here's something I want to try on you. Let's go for it. Yeah, let's go yeah.
1: for it. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, these poor experimental humans. But we'll see. We'll see. And hopefully transparency. I think that's going to be a huge an emphasis on transparency in the results of these patients. By the way, I didn't mention, but it's 10 patients that were carefully selected from hundreds of candidates. So it's a relatively small scale, but enough that we can we should be able to glean some insight from the treatment. All right. Well, on to something new, but something old. You've heard of it before, this resveratrol. Oh, man, it's back. All right, now we're talking about this resveratrol, which is the cure-all. It can do everything, the panacea, that hasn't quite panned out. Well, not yet, at least. But now it's being claimed it can kill colon cancer stem cells. So there's good evidence for this. Uh, this is a group from Penn State. They're showing that resveratrol combined with grapeseed extract is really effective for killing colon cancer cells. They reported this in recent issue of BMC Complementary and Alternative Medicine. The idea is that they'll use this for clinical treatment. You know, uh, they'll give someone a pill that has these decoupled compounds and it'll be a way to cure or treat, prevent colon cancer because it specifically, it's thought acts on the stem cells. Just to give some details on the experimenter when they were given separately in low doses, resveratrol and grapeseed extract were not as effective against cancer stem cell suppression as when they're combined together. I guess that's the big takeaway. Although they did compare them to a compound that is known to be effective and they were nearly as effective as this compound with shown success. And it wasn't just in vitro. They actually had an animal study where they separated 52 mice with colon cancer tumors into three groups. They had a control group and groups with either grape compounds or sulindac, which is this anti-inflammatory drug which has previously been shown to reduce the number of tumors in humans human studies, and the incidence of tumors were suppressed in these mice consuming the grape combined with the resveratrol alone by fifty percent, and that was comparable to what you got with the sulindac, so maybe an alternative maybe holistic or natural i don't know what you want to call it therapy for colon cancer. if it were me or my mine, I would give them the drug to be honest, but uh, it's another it's another one of these potential uses for resveratrol, a very exciting compound, mechanistically not very well understood, but a lot of people are excited about it, and it's an excuse to drink more wine, so that's I'm, what I'm I, all for it.
0: That's what I was going to say. I mean, they say low doses. What is the low dose? And in- how many bottles of wine is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'm making the low dose. I, I got, I'm at the low dose at the very least. So, right. my colon is is having a party right now. I know.
0: Now. I'm just gonna keep drinking my red wine, and you know, I'll just keep it at that for now.
1: Yeah, or grape juice, Kiki. If you want to keep it clean, you can get on the grape I juice. But how fun is it that?
0: The, it's not as fun as the wine.
1: Yeah. Not nearly. Maybe for the kiddies. <laughs>
0: for, for the, the kiddies. kids, yeah. Keep them
1: on the, the juice.
0: We could make grape popsicles. Ah, the kids. So we could, yeah, summertime. It's architect. summertime. Grape juice popsicles.
1: And you live forever.
0: And you prevent the colon cancer. There we go.
1: <laughs> oh man. I could make a joke there, but it's kids. I don't want to talk about colon. All right. So next we're talking about my man, handsome Hans. There's a backstory there, but needless to say, this guy is dashing. Stem cell scientist. He's running for Congress. So there's a small pack of scientists running for, I mean, you know, it's a relatively small group, these guys who run for political office out of the sciences, and now there's one more. It's stem cell researcher Hans Kierstedt, who's 50 years old. He announced last week that he's going to try and unseat the California rep Dana Rohrabacher. Kierstedt is a Democrat. He has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from University of British Columbia. He was a professor at UC Irvine before he got super rich. Selling several biotech companies. Rohrbacher, on the other hand, he represents the 48th district in Southern California. He's been in Congress forever, since 1988. Uh, but Democrats see 2018, his 30 year anniversary, as a vulnerable year for the incumbent because although Republicans outnumber Democrats, Hillary, she swung that county in the 2016 election. Well, it is California and these people aren't crazy. Does <laughs> uh, so it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like come on. that's a major defeat? But uh, I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully, it'll work out for Handsome Hans. But maybe more importantly, Rohrbecker has come under a lot of scrutiny because he's supported a close relationship with Russia, which we all know is unpopular right now. And so, you know, not surprisingly, the chair of the Orange County Democrats told the Washington Post the challengers were, quote, coming out of the woodwork, quote, unquote, to oppose him. So there's five candidates apart from. Handsome Hans, who've declared they're running for the seat. So, just a little color in on on Dr. Kierstead here. He emerged from academic and entrepreneurial fields. He's, I mean, a role model of mine. He's a great scientist who translated it and got rich. Can't complain. He pioneered this technique for purifying stem cells. He famously said, You can't go putting toenails into the spinal cord. His major effort (laughs) was, (laughs) was, Yeah, it's not a good idea. He was trying to treat spinal cord injury with stem cells and he developed these, this tech for purifying them, uh, also you know, looking into other diseases, cancer, ALS. And in 2014, he sold a stem cell company in a deal reportedly worth more than $100 million. Eight zeros, Kiki. Wow. But he's not going to be funding his own com- campaign. Okay? So he's going to save that money for the yacht. Here said he does have the support of the 314 Action. It's a nonprofit group that encourages scientists to seek public office. And I personally would love to see the man in business over there. You know, it seems like he's had a lot of success in science. As an entrepreneur, he's got to be able to do better than some people in government. So I- I'd love to see more scientific voices in, out there. So I'm voting I'm for him, even though. I'm not over there,
0: even though you're not in Southern California yeah, to actually okay. vote.
1: <laughs> going to do a little vote sp- in spirit. You got you know? Aren't you from there? You were in San Fran. That uh, you represent there. Get down there, re-represent. Re- San
0: Francisco is nowhere near Southern California. Yes,
1: well, it's some. It's in California. Geography was never really two my states. Northern
0: California totally different from Southern California. So. Yeah. When you say Californians are crazy, we're just talking about the Southern Californians. No. <laughs>
1: okay. Hence, we're not optimistic for handsome Hans. He's probably oh. not going to make it, I guess.
0: No, I, I mean, who knows? He he is he, looking at some images of him as we're talking. He is a handsome man. And we we know that psychology works very well for the attractive uh, among us when it comes yeah. to you voting. You know,
1: it's funny you say that. I just saw not just voting. Uh, it was just there was an article I just saw today that said that the, the quality of the science is, is considered better when it's a presenter, you know, who is who is like objectively facial symmetry or whatever. They scienced it. But good looking people are more convincing as scientists and have better science, apparently. So pays to look good. Handsome Hans it made it worth a hundred million <laughs> yeah you would think right i would I want my <laughs> truth from a real geek <laughs> a real sloth, yeah, <laughs> but you know we can't all look that bad we can't
0: all no <laughs> we can't all go into podcasting no um, <laughs> the big thing here though is that it's another scientist putting himself out there into politics, trying to do something, and you know seeing that there is an it, you know, not liking the way things are going, and saying I'm going to run for office and see if I can do better. See if people will vote for me, and see if I can do better. So, Absolutely. scientists, you know,
1: it's a good yeah. good way to retire. You want to retire rich? Do it in government. I respect that. I'll be looking for big things, provided he gets the vote. And last story for me, real quick. I just want to shoot in. We we alluded. To age-related macular degeneration, it's the second trial from the China group. So I'm just circling around to close here with a quick little study that I think is important. It's from the Ninsky, from Jeffrey Stern's group. And the bottom line here is that the the stage, the developmental stage of these retinal pigmented epithelial cells that are being introduced into the eye to treat this age-related macular degeneration is important. Okay? So age related macular degeneration, it's a common cause of vision loss in the elderly. We know this. And this is one of the first, you know, the places where we're the, the early stage trials of pluripotent stem cell derived therapies are in the eye because it's immune privileged and it's a relatively simple organ in this case to treat this disease at least. So it's, there's a lot of work in uh, using these RPE cells. But what uh, Jeffrey Stern's group here is they've got these adult derived rpe so there there is like an adult stem cell population that you can get and expand into these rp cells and you can inject them into a rat model which has you know shows rpe cell dysfunction and test how well these things work and the important takeaway from this study was that while all different stages they improved the cells that were obtained after four weeks of culture were more consistent at vision rescue than cells that were either earlier, two weeks, or later, eight weeks in culture. So it suggests that like there's a kind of optimal region where the cells have the most either therapeutic, developmental, whatever potency you wanna talk about. And I think that's something that people haven't really paid close enough attention to. We think of cell types for therapy as like a single identity. There's a single milestone on the whole spectrum of cells and that's it, but you know, cells, they breathe. It's like DNA, they breathe. They have an identity that's complex, you know, they're like human beings. They're not black or white or male or female, you know, you can't pigeonhole them. They are a spectrum, even within the same organ, within the same, you know, type of cell. You can have subtle variations specifically with respect to their age, so to speak, or how mature or immature they are. So I think this is a really one of those under... Credited studies out there that it's just, you know, it's a, it's a point on the incremental scale of advancing the science towards therapeutics, but a really important stride, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, knowing at what stage is, it's going to be optimal to take a cell and stick it into an eye or into the brain or into the kidney or liver or wherever you're going to put it, you know, you need to know that it's going to work well. You want maximum Success, right? Maximum probability of success.
1: You know what they say, Kiki. Yeah. You don't want to put a toenail in there. You, you know what I'm saying? To. I
0: I don't think you want to put toenails very many places. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Those... Why do we even have toenails? Can we get somebody on to talk about right? that? Right.
0: Isn't that like the the pinky toenail is like oh. evolving away? People Can't are losing their their pinky toe toenail.
1: It's just in the way. <laughs>
0: Just in the way.
1: Put it in a spinal cord or something.
0: That's right. Have we done it? Did that do the roundup?
1: We're done. We're, we're round.
0: We are round. Okay, so before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let us know about their flyer, Numacult X Plus. This flyer provides an overview of the new and improved workflow to culture human primary airway epithelial cells at the air-liquid interface, or ALI. Using Numacult X-Plus for expansion and Pneumacult ALI for differentiation, using these products, researchers will get more population doublings at each passage while maintaining morphological and electrophysiological characteristics even after extended passaging. Stem Cell Podcast listeners can find out more information and get technical resources at www.numacult spelled t.com www.numacult.com All right. Well, the Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Dr. Daryl Cotton. Dr. Cotton is assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, as well as in the Department of Medicine. He attends in the Medical Intensive Care Unit and on the Pulmonary Consultation Service at Boston Medical Center. Dr. Cotton's research focuses on stem cell biology and gene therapy related to lung injury and repair, Dr. Cotton's laboratory currently utilizes several stem cell populations, including bone marrow-derived stem cells and embryonic stem cells, in order to develop novel stem cell-based therapies for lung disease. In addition, Dr. Cotton specializes in the genetic manipulation of stem cells, as well as resident lung cells using lentiviral vectors. Thank you for joining us today on the Stem Cell Podcast, Dr. Cotton. My pleasure. So can you start us off by explaining for our audience in a little bit more detail about you and the focus of your work?
2: Yes, sure. I'm uh, by training an adult pulmonologist, pulmonary and critical care physician, and uh, early in my training, I became interested in basic science research, so I'm what you would call a physician scientist who spends 80% of my time in basic science research, mostly on stem cell biology, and 20% of my time... In clinical work seeing patients with lung diseases. So as part of my research, I launched a Center for Regenerative Medicine that's a physically contiguous floor of a building that has several labs all working on pluripotent stem cells. So I direct the center and I'm also principal investigator of my own 12-person lab.
0: That's wonderful. And so in your own lab, can you give us a little bit more detail about the stuff you're focusing on?
2: I've been enamored with the idea for a number of years of trying to generate from scratch, if you will, lung cells, lung epithelial cells in particular. And I've been focusing on trying to engineer those cells from pluripotent stem cells in vitro by recapitulating the stages of how the lung develops. So essentially, I would describe myself as a developmental biologist as well as a stem cell biologist. And my main focus is lung epithelial biology.
1: Let's drill down on that a little bit. What do we talk about recapitulating lung organogenesis? I guess what people are thinking is like lungs. They're picturing the organ next to the heart in an adult, but it's actually obviously much more complicated than that. What kind of scale or whatever resolution you want to talk about it, what are the challenges to getting to that if it's ever going to happen? And where are you kind of dabbling now? Like what kind of scale can you... Get these lung organoids too
2: right so i mean the real end goal is to try to recreate an organ that took so many billions of years of evolution to develop it's the latest organ to arise in air breathing animals and it recapitulates in a small area a structure that is you know the surface area of like a tennis court to provide gas exchange and to get to that a lot of folding and proliferation had to happen during fetal development to produce this organ that has many cell types with many layers all working perfectly in this massive cell surface area. So, what we're doing in a laboratory dish, obviously, we're not creating a tennis court sized organoids, but you know, we're going to have to figure out how to answer your question to scale up to create many cells of many types in enough numbers and sophisticated structures to recapitulate that organ. So, where we are, we consider is almost just beyond the very beginnings. Of trying to organize one cell at a time and then make hundreds or even millions of those cells, very tiny numbers, if you will, but to make them as best we can to as mature a state as we can. So we're talking about building bricks one cell at a time in our decades long goal pursuit of trying to recreate the lung in future generations. How far are we in that pursuit? Well, in terms of millions of cells, we are able to make pretty well. Some of these epithelial cells that we describe as an airway cell, that's the conducting pipes of the lung that carries the air. And we're starting to make air sac cells or alveolar cells that are the end sac gas exchange units of the lung. And those are long term goals of ours to make those two kind of structures at small scale before we go to big scale.
1: So, just elaborating, I was trained as a developmental biologist sure. myself. And, you know, I've always been excited about the whole idea that this is kind of an autonomous process, notwithstanding the idea that you need the maternal interface and circulation. Once you get that nidus of an embryo, it takes care of itself, the intercellular communication that sets the ball rolling, and then you have all these cellular interactions that kind of, you know, are on autopilot. Uh, the reason right. I'm talking about that general foundation is this paper from Hans-Willem Snoke sure you're aware of where they made these lung organoids. And I thought it was really remarkable there that they just made the starting tissue, threw it in a matrigel plug, and then let it grow for weeks, months. And the, the organoid cell formed into a lung-like structure. Is Would you say, I mean, I know you agonized, I'm sure, to get through all those developmental milestones, but how much of any organ development do you think is really can take care of itself? What threshold you have to get an organ to before it can just grow and self-organize? Because the idea of making an organ by putting a bunch of cells together, to me, seems far-fetched. You kind of have to let them create themselves. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, what an interesting question. So there's some things that seem really programmed and primordial. You know, we know from putting stem cells in the undifferentiated state just into the sides of mice to make those tumors called teratomas that weird things can pop out sometimes, like teeth or little intestinal folds. And so there must be a huge amount of pre-programming that happens automatically. So interesting enough, we never find lungs. You can't find lungs in teratomas. Why is that is an interesting question, but there must be something complicated. And so for when you refer to Dr. Snook's work, his work in particular, he's focused on taking these cells quite far, developmentally meaning You go all the way through the endoderm and foregut tube, through gastrulation, all the way into lung progenitors, which we would consider to be very, very far along before he can get those cells to start to behave in these automatic structural ways. So I guess that's a long answer to saying it's stunning how much automatic pre-programming there is in in general in biology. But it's also quite surprising that the lung in particular has to be so far along before it'll start to self-organize. Now, when we talk about self-organizing, you know, there's some things we worked on, like thyroid follicles, where beyond endoderm, when you start to make thyroid follicles in a 3D culture system, the self-organization is so impressive that you swear sometimes you're looking at like a real thyroid follicle forming almost automatically after the endoderm stage. That's really stunning. Now, for lungs, Dr. Snook's work or our work forming these so-called organoids, we would say they look nothing like lungs. They're impressive in their self-organization, the way they form spheres, or they form these lobulated, epithelialized layers that have the right programs, but their structure is so far away from a complex air sac that it's quite humbling and different than some of the other organs, I think. You've come a long way and a long way to go.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you actually differentiate the lung cells from other cells? Like you're talking about the, you know, teratomas and there's a differentiation into tooth type. There's a differentiation in all cells. There's specific differentiation. So what differentiates the lung cells that you are working with from other cells?
2: So are you asking me how we act? What are the steps we use to differentiate them or coax them along in the laboratory dish? Perhaps is
0: yeah. What were you looking for to say, this is a lung cell and then we're going to take it and coax it along?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, at the start of the debates were, how do you even recognize a lung cell if you made one, right? You're not probably going to create breathing lungs in a dish. So if an organ isn't breathing or you can't recognize its architecture or geography, how do you even know it's a lung cell? So we started by, like for other organs, we'd say there's very meaningful genes that are highly specific to the lung epithelium. And if those genes would come on, that would be a pretty good hint. And then beyond one gene, if all the right genes came on in the whole genome, then you'd start to at least say you create the genetic program of a lung, even if it's shaped and look recognizable. So when we started this work, we started to write down all the steps it would take to develop lungs from the beginning when you're a a fetus to the end when you form fully mature lung cells. And we started to go step by step. Step-by-step step means uh, if lungs come from the endoderm germ layer, one would spend some time trying to create the best possible endoderm you could possibly make before going on to the next step of a foregut endoderm or the next step of a lung cell. So how long would it take to make good endoderm? It turns out many years. So that's the first humbling uh, admission is it was a lot harder to make endoderm than we bargained for. And our breakthroughs came from a uh, scientist, Gordon Keller, who figured out how to make it very well, published it. And Of course, we immediately took uh, the Chinatown bus to Gordon Keller's lab in New York City and begged him, please let us (laughs) school us in the ways of making endoderm. And and he agreed to do that, and it wasn't uh, a month or a week. It was really years of practicing that. And step by step, we proceeded. Now, in the middle of our journey, we just couldn't make lung after making the best endoderm. And this is where Dr. Snook's uh, serendipitous breakthrough really helped us. He kind of stumbled on his way trying to make thymus, which also comes from endoderm stumbled on a cocktail, a recipe, and that had a lung pop out. And we're very fortunate to run into him. And through his serendipitous discovery, it solved a major bottleneck for us. And we were able to make progress in the years after that to make better and better lung cells from our endoderm.
1: You allude to this idea that, you know, you have to go step by step. That totally makes sense. And you also were talking about how we have a long way to go. And you and Dr. Snook agree that what you guys have created, although amazing, is not lung in a dish. Could you just elaborate? Are we talking architecturally? In terms of like the ontogeny, do we have mature lung cells that you would find in a later stage fetus, but they're just not organized correctly? Or are they molecularly not at a mature lung phenotype?
2: Yeah, this is an unresolved debate that we have internally which is philosophical. How would you know if you have a lung cell or not, if you're not in a lung and you don't recognize a structure? So as best we can tell by profiling the whole genome of these cells through RNA sequencing, some of the cells seem to have gotten to be extremely mature in their genetic program. And we focused on some readouts like how much surfactant or how mature the surfactant can be that a lung cell produces, because that's one of the defining features of a very mature. pneumocyte. And those readouts tell us that some of the cells do reach quite an advanced stage. So are all the cells advanced enough? Almost certainly not. Are they in the right structure or neighborhood or geography? No. So I think the short answer, given the debate can't be resolved to your question, is we're making cells that aren't fully mature, or at least all the cells aren't fully mature, and the structure is not assembled yet into uh, what we would be happy to call a lung. The programs are much more advanced now than they were 10 years ago. That's the good news.
0: And then taking this almost as not really a lung in a dish, these spheres that you've created and using them as a model for actually studying disease, taking that to the next step from, hey, we can do this, we can produce these lung cells, we can produce something that has the characteristics of specific lung cells. How do you go about modeling disease now? The
2: inspiration for modeling disease with these spheres was to say, uh, you know, if the cells look pretty good, but they're not perfect, is there at least something useful we could do with them? And so we thought the most useful thing we could do is to measure a very highly penetrant monogenic lung disease like cystic fibrosis. So if we made IPS cells from cystic fibrosis patients, which we had already banked, gene edited the mutation back to normal that's responsible for cystic fibrosis. So the CFTR mutation model back to normal. Then could we make two spheres in parallel wells, one sphere population being mutant, one being corrected, but otherwise the same genetic background. What useful experiments could we do to model disease? And this is where we started to play with the forescal-induced swelling of the bronchospheres and the amount they swell turned out to be a direct measure of the function of the CFTR gene and the mutant cells did not swell, barely at all, and the gene-edited or corrected cells swelled quite impressively, and that became, for us, a very quantitative readout or measure of disease. So that, in a buzzword, is disease model, and from there, after our publication, we've since started to test drugs. Finn Hawkins, who was one of the co-authors of these papers, has tested drugs that seem to be getting measurable responses in swelling and then the, the open question that nobody's answered is well, does that swelling amount of swelling some way predict the way the actual patient's going to respond to the same drugs and that's an ongoing experiment
1: just to be clear i mean does that mean the diseased line does not swell in the presence of the yes. forskling is that correct so yes. in that if you're taking that to the next stage for the drug screening would you then couple forskolin with the whole panel of drugs and see how in a disease line, without correcting it, you could restore swelling That's in the it, presence exactly. of forskolin, And then that same compound presumably would be able to mitigate the disease symptoms in an actual patient. Is that the picture?
2: That's exactly right. So the one extreme, the mutant sphere that doesn't swell, is the sphere to be tested. And then the other extreme, what we'd call the positive control, would be the gene-edited Sphere that swells maximally for that person's sphere, and then in between would be all the measured in between responses to drug, exactly as you said it. So forskolin makes the swelling by activating cyclic AMP signaling, and that doesn't do much when you have a mute, very mutant CFTR channel. And then, if the drug helps to move the CFTR protein to the right place or fold it properly, so it starts to function, then in the presence of forskolin, you start to measure swelling. So yes, wow. as you said, forskolin combined with drug equals perhaps a precision medicine score, if you will.
1: See, I think everybody's been so focused on making the lung or whatever it is that there's not enough credit given to this idea that, you know, who needs to make new tissues when you can fix the old with a really strong human model. So I'm very impressed. Thank you.
0: Is it possible that uh, in addition to a drug treatment, because you would expect that maybe a drug treatment you'd end up having to, a patient, looking down the line clinically, a patient would have to be continually taking a drug, that one dose would probably not be enough to cure the disease. Would gene editing itself in a patient be an option as well?
2: Yeah, I think that for many Genetic disease is a huge area of research is how to edit either in vivo, deliver editors to the disease cells to correct them or outside the body to edit a cell that could be then delivered back into the body. And the conceptually on paper, that should be curative. Fixing genes in the body by gene editing, provided those self-renew live a long time function. Should be cured for that disease. So, how to accomplish what seems simple on paper in trials is 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 a huge mountain to climb.
0: Seems to work in a dish model.
2: That's right. right. I think you know back when the CFTR gene and mutation were described, I think people thought within a matter of five years you'd simply take a virus, pop in a normal copy of the gene somewhere in the cell in the lung, let's say, and cystic fibrosis would be cured. And you know, decades later, we still have not accomplished that.
1: Why do you think that is? I mean, I know hematological malignancies, you really only need to hit some small proportion of the self-renewing cells that can become everything. So it's a mass effect. But I thought the adeno-associated viruses and the lung seems particularly accessible with some kind of aerosolized thing. So, like, in theory, in my... P brain i'm thinking hey yeah this should be a low-hanging fruit but you're doing it i mean you're specialized in lentivirus you viral vectors and the lungs so it's all in your wheelhouse what's the major bottleneck there
2: yeah it seems so simple you could definitely get these genes these copies of genes with viruses into some lung cells so you know the general limitations we obsess over is it never seems to be enough cells or the cells don't live long enough. And then if you try to redose, the virus immunity has developed now against the virus. And lung cells, they don't, the right lung epithelial cells, the one that are affected that we want to get the genes into, they don't like to take up these genes. So we, it turns out we've evolved these amazing protective mechanisms to prevent extra stuff, DNA, RNA, getting into our lung cells. So a lot of the virus vectors we put down, lentiviruses, for example, they refuse to go to the cells of interest. They go right to macrophages. Those, those old, evolved, uh, protective innate immune cells love to take up the viruses and take them away from the cells we want to deliver the goods to. So these are the hurdles. Once we get the, cell, the genes in, the cells either are not enough of them, they don't live long enough, they're not in a stem cell or progenitor that's self renewing to sustain the uh, target. So it's very frustrating. Editing seems particularly attractive. Get it into a right stem cell just once, maybe, and it's in the right place in the genome, gene fixed. Cell divides, takes over, and I guess it remains to be seen whether this is going to solve our hurdles or not. Just
1: mm-hmm. to be specific, you mean delivering a cell that's been edited or differentiated from ES cells or to edit in situ? Yeah.
2: I was talking about editing in situ, that if you get the editing into the right cell in the body and it's the right cell, and if it's a stem cell, or cell at least. What then- about-
1: what about the other one? What about delivering cells? Yeah, Is that okay. so in the I vicinity? I think
2: delivering cells probably much safer because now you can, when you edit the genome, you cut it, and it's pretty dangerous. So if you could do that in the laboratory dish and then do the safety characterization, you now might have a safer product. Now the hurdle becomes nobody's really reproducibly delivered cells back in. So there's just a couple of recent publications that claim to have started to do that now. And we've had a lot of false starts in the past decades of people that have claimed to graft cells in the lung and it hasn't panned out. So putting cells back in the lung in particular, not so convincingly done, still early days. Putting cells back into things like the blood and bone marrow, those have been done for many years, but the lung is a tricky one to graft cells into.
0: The lung itself, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the characteristics of the lung is that it's a very regenerative organ. It's con- the, airway is con- it's- the epithelia of the airway is constantly turning over. The lung itself can repair itself from you know, damage from smoking over several years' time. So how does that add into the challenge of working with the lung on these diseases?
2: Yeah. Some of the challenges are that the lung is actually pretty quiet and doing nothing. It's just sitting there with an extremely low proliferative index. The cells are not cycling and proliferating until you injure it. So when you injure it, you have this totally different behavior. And as you said, this regenerative organ after influenza, we just cycle our cells and repair and it should. So I guess the hint is if you can study those processes, just understand how the lung kicks into regeneration and augment that, or fit a new cell in between those regenerating cells, you probably have a lot figured out. It's pretty hard to convince people or society, I guess, just to invest in the very, very basic science of how signaling pathways work, how sulfate is controlled at a very basic level by just curious people who want to know the answer, how a cell decides to cycle or not in the lung. And that's where I think the investment is at. Just go for the basic studies, not the fancy clinical trials, and we'd probably figure out a lot more about lung regeneration. Once we've done that, the foundation then is right for starting to do what we were talking about, augment repair with drugs or fit new cells in, that's called engraftment. To invest in the foundation, absolutely critical, not very popular these days, unfortunately. So I'm advocating, go back to, I don't think it's boring, but what a politician might call the boring stuff because they can't explain it, signaling pathways. What are the signaling pathways? Most of them are studyable in fruit flies and worms and things that the politicians don't like to invest in. But that's where the next generation's payoff is. Somebody who's willing to take the risk, has the guts to stand up and say, "We want to fund Drosophila fruit fly research," and that's going to solve the problem of lung regeneration, they'll probably have the biggest uh, payoff. Fund Drosophila fruit fly. That's something of the lung a disease. Pulmonologist who's telling uh, all the iTunes podcast audience here. The investment for the smart people, the big payoff, is go backwards. down the Ladies, ladies not-
1: and gentlemen, he's a clinical scientist. He's saying, bring it back to basic. I've never been happier on the podcast. I'm beaming right now.
2: <laughs> you know, we're scientists and we can respond to data, right? And if you just act like a scientist and do an experiment to survey the medical literature, what investments have paid off long term with the biggest clinically relevant discoveries There was a famous science paper written about this by Julius Carmo, who actually surveyed the literature. You find that the majority of the big clinical advances in cardiopulmonary research relevant to patients were done, came from scientists who were curious, who did basic experiments with absolutely no pretense of clinical relevance at the time they did those basic studies. Those resulted in the majority of the big cardiopulmonary clinical advances in our time. We should learn from history from that lesson and invest back in the basics.
1: That's a very powerful statement. I'm glad to hear you say that. Unfortunately, when my study committee comes back and says, how is this translatable? I don't think I'm going to be able to tell them what you just said. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to the listeners to just remember words taught to me by my mentors, people like uh, Dr. Mary Williams, who always taught me all research is translational. Just keep trying to explain that to people. You can't predict what's going to be clinically applicable. The history teaches, the literature teaches, all research is translational.
0: It all builds upon the past findings. You can't go forward without a good place to step upon.
2: Yeah,
1: if it's done carefully, of course, if it's done carefully and correctly.
0: We don't want to keep you too much longer. I know it's the end of the week of a probably very busy week for you. And we thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you for joining us.
2: It's my great pleasure. Thank you for asking.
1: All right, that was Dr. Daryl Cotton telling us how he's using stem cells to look at genetic disease. In this case, cystic fibrosis, really cool system. I love it when you can correct the phenotype. You know, you show a phenotype that it's the disease, and then you reverse the genetic mutation and it fixes it. Like, that's like, is there a better proof? So, Dr. Cotton, you nailed it, man. I love it. Yeah,
0: and it, this is just, you know, that next step in personalizing medicine even more, you know, your disease, we will fix your disease.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah. It's a big deal. But first we got to talk about what you're pissed off about. Forget about your disease.
0: (laughs) That's right. Okay. At this point we are going to close our show as we do with our SCP rant. And the rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So Dalen, what are we ranting about today?
1: For this episode, I'm ranting about oppressive gifting, okay? This isn't just like, oh, they're just so kind and generous. Just keep on giving me gifts. That's kind of annoying. But it's like the, the specific gifts that's unwelcome. In this case, I love her to death, the crossing guard, who's you know so sweet to my kids every day on the way to school. But on the last day of school, it just happened she gave both of my kids, one of whom literally who's in his, was three and a half, just a little while ago, when he had a molar pulled out of his mouth and was under the gas, it was traumatic. And she gave this kid a full bag of Skittles. Now, I mean, she doesn't know that he has one less tooth and is traumatized, but even so, I don't think you should be giving anybody a bunch of candy. Everybody knows that. It's oppressive. Stop giving me stuff I don't want, Kiki. Do you ever get stuff that you're just like, I don't even want it. Like, can you please uh, tell me?
0: Uh, every once in a while, yeah, you do get those those presents where you're like, why? Why? What do you? What were you even thinking of? You know, like someone's like, here's a gift basket full of <laughs> you know random lunch meats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm a vegetarian. Yeah, no, I,
0: I don't. I don't <laughs> eat beef or pork products. And you know, my dad, he just refuses to remember this. And so, for my birthday last year, he got me this gift basket. I also don't eat cheese because I have a lactose issue. And so, he gives me a gift basket that's full of cheese and beef sticks and salami and all this stuff. And I'm like. Eh, Thanks so much, Dad. <laughs>
1: Thanks a lot. Thanks for just, paying attention.
0: What am I... It's like, yeah, so that's like... It's like the not paying attention thing. You know, it's just... It's inappropriate. And then I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? It's just yeah, that's sitting the worst here.
1: Part. I mean, you can't throw it away. I can't I, throw it
0: away because it's from my dad and it's all perfectly good stuff, but I'm not going to eat it. So then do I re-gift it? Do I, you well, know, every but time somebody comes... Invite people over so that I can have a... a meat and cheese... <laughs> party
1: (laughs) fiesta (laughs)
0: Fiesta?
1: beach smorgasburg Yeah. yeah well there's plenty of meat there for you i don't know i'll tell you what i did you can't do it i took those skittles and i threw like all but a handful away but the bottom line is and i look like a huge jerk and she comes up as a hero. And not only that, <laughs> next time we pass the street, you know he's going to be asking for something else. I mean, this is going to be a problem in my life.
0: I know. You know what? You're the guy who's taking candy from babies.
1: Exactly. Thanks <laughs> a lot, Crossing Guard. <laughs> Thanks so See much. See you next year. You just
0: put me in this position. Darn well, it.
1: So I'm saying stop with the gifts that are questionable, you know? Give a gift. Like, give me a gift card. There you go. Give me a gift certificate yeah. to the candy store. I'll take that.
0: Uh, do you get oppressive gifts out there? Everyone let us know and also send us your rant ideas on Twitter at stemcellpodcast or email info at com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 95. We have done it. The Stem Cell Podcast is over and out. Be sure to tune in for our next fun-filled episode.
1: All right, Kiki, everyone get out there. Summer's on.